0: Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, we're in a section that typically I preach at Christmas, so this is Christmas in July, but uh, Matthew's gospel is rich and the paragraphs before us are um, about Jesus being king. And I believe what led me and us to the gospel of Matthew is that this gospel is about The true king, the king that we need more than ever before. We need a king and we have a king and it is Christ. And Matthew crowns Christ as king, the ultimate king, the perfect king. In our culture today, it's not an understatement to say that people are looking to belong to certain movements, to certain Causes. It's no understatement to say that people want to belong to a cause and sort of latch on to something. Being a revolutionary of sorts is kind of in vogue. It's a trend to protest or to make a statement. I think that in part that is the instinct of being made in the image of God because we want to right wrongs. We want There to be justice in the land, we long for righteousness and we find indignation rise in our hearts for things that are wrong, that aren't right, but it's never been more important than now to be crystal clear on the Christian's mission. What is our mission as a Christian? What are we supposed to be about and Involved in, to be part of activism, to be part of causes on a political level or in terms of societal ills, really doesn't take a spiritually minded person. You don't have to be a Christian to participate in those things, trying to solve something temporal, but to solve for the eternal, to be involved in Christ's Mission, the Great Commission mission, you have to be spiritually minded. You have to be a Christian. You have to be filled with the Spirit. The natural person doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. It's clouded in terms of the whys and hows of Christianity, but Christianity is for spiritually minded people. We're called to participate with Christ in His mission. We're going to get there much later in the Gospel of Matthew in our journey through this book. But later on, the Jews cry out for Christ to be their revolutionary, for him to be the one to politically overthrow Rome. That's what they wanted. They cry for the lion when they should have been looking for the lamb. They cry out for a judge to come with an iron fist instead of looking for the servant king. We're learning that even in today's movements within the church, there's a resurgence of liberal theology that is dumbing down the gospel or reshaping or remolding Jesus and his mission into kind of a social justice gospel. It's an accusation, a subtle one that says if you're not an activist, if you're not part of social justice, then you're missing the gospel or you don't have the full clear gospel. And I don't think that's true at all. Christ's mission is clearly to solve the sin issue in our world. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, if you look at verse 21, it's right in the heart of our passage. The mission is clear. The angel said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. The big issue that needs to be solved is the sin issue. And the only person who can solve the sin problem in our world and in our lives is Jesus, the Savior. And people back in the 50s and 60s created a social gospel that people latched onto and they basically... Um, trended towards a theology, an errant theology, an errant or wrong Christology that claimed that Christ came not from a virgin but was just human-born. And they created this overhumanized Christ to the expense of his deity and lauded a anti-supernaturalism, a Jesus that was just about do-gooding. And we were to follow in that way, can just do good and be socially um, loving to people like Jesus. When you dumb down the virgin birth, or you you cloud you cloud the clarity of Christ being born by a virgin, then you undo His deity. And Christ, as God, brings guess what accountability to our world. He, by his very presence, unearths the real problem, and that is not temporal ills or temporal problems, but the core issue being sin, which is an offense against a holy God that has to be solved by a true Savior who is fully God and fully man. So the protection and clarity of the virgin birth of Christ is what I want us to focus on, because to protect And clarify Jesus' supernatural birth is to really lay before us Jesus who is God, who came with a very clear mission. Now, certainly Jesus came, and when he came before, he solved temporal issues. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He caused the blind to see, the deaf to hear. He did all of those things. He ministered to people. person after person after person who would come to him for help. And he gave immediate care in the temporal. But make no mistake, Jesus was not graded in terms of how many people he healed or didn't heal. He left some people unhealed in this world, right? His true mission was to be the savior for sins. He was solving people's sin problem that was an eternal issue, not a temporal one at all even the book of James it speaks of true and undefiled religion being to minister to orphans and widows there are temporal ministry needs that we need to address James 2 don't show partiality to uh, in terms of the rich and the poor don't don't class people in different classes and treat them differently because you're breaking the law of God in that way Don't turn your heart away to people in need. James 2 talks about that. But the whole point of James, the whole point that he's making is that you either have a living faith or a dead faith. You are either alive spiritually or you are dead. You are either on your way to heaven because you are alive or you are on your way to hell because you are dead. And so look at your actions. Look at how you treat people. But really examine the true and deepest need, which is, are you truly born again? This is the mission of Christ. This is what he came to solve, to save his people from their sins. This is the king's mission. And we're going to look at that. What is this mission? And why does the virgin birth qualify Jesus as the only and unique king who can take us on this mission. Listen as I read this section. Again, this is Christmas in July, but follow as I read verse 18 and following. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his I'm sorry, in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together This is a study on the king, King Jesus. And if we were taking a class, it would be a study in Christology, the study of Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? And this narrative, interestingly, comes through the eyes and experience of, not Mary, but Joseph. Luke's gospel, that account of the virgin Birth is conveyed through the experience of Mary as she pondered all of these things and the significance of the the promises of the Messiah that were coming through her immaculate conception. I mean, that's the reality of Luke's account. But here, what we're relating to is a husband, one betrothed to Mary, who's grasping and grappling with the significance of finding out that his wife is with child, finding out that something has taken place in her life that he needs to believe in, finding out that she is with child that's not his own and that this child has been conceived supernaturally, someone that he has to wrestle with and, and understand and ultimately yield his life to. In many ways, we can relate to Joseph in a way that we can't relate with Mary because Mary experienced the miracle conception and birth. Joseph is kind of a bystander watching this, contending with truth surrounding it. Is this truly the king? Is this a supernatural conception? And what is the significance of that? What does that mean for my life and my mission? Probably Joseph's dreams were suddenly dashed or upended at first when he found out she his betrothed wife Mary was with child I mean I uh, was probably shocked and appalled and having to work through all of that and so we as fellow believers Joseph being a believer an Old Testament saint if you will someone who who was just a commoner we're we're, we're going on Joseph's journey with him that's probably the way to put it. Joseph was, as we know, a, a carpenter. Um, the Greek word tekton describes him. He was uh, a righteous man, verse 19 says. He was a, a just man. He was a carpenter by trade, Matthew thirteen fifty-five says. He was a son of David. He was part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. It was all of these things, but just just a believer, but what I want to show you through even Joseph's eyes is that what we're proving out is the difference between a human conception and an eternal conception. What do I mean by that? I mean, Jesus was conceived, his lineage comes from the Holy Spirit, he is the second member of the Trinity. Now, if you go back to what we studied last week, uh, the lineage of jesus christ he comes through the line of david and all these names that we went through last time verses 1 through 17 connect the dots of how we come to joseph and how joseph vindicates jesus coming from a kingly regal line and we understand that And verse 1 of chapter 1 says it's the book of the genealogy that's the word genesis in the original language It's a birth. It's from the Greek uh, Greek verb genomai, to become. It's talking about Jesus's origin through these different marital links and through the begatting, the begatting, the begatting. We get it. However, at verse 18, the same word is used and it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ. Same word, the genesis, the origin of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So you have 2,000 years of history that builds a case for the line of Christ coming through Joseph, even though Joseph is a stepfather, he's not Jesus' biological father, there's still credibility there given to Christ being king through Joseph. But, but it's almost like, look, we're going to create a big disparity between verse 17 and 18 now because we're going we're to move past the human lineage and go all the way to eternity and show that Jesus is. Conception comes from the eternal God called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned twice here, so it's emphatic in terms of his involvement with this miracle conception. Verse 18 and then verse 20, the Holy Spirit is used again to to name God's involvement to really highlight Jesus' origin, which is an eternal. Origin. You have a comparison here in one sense between Joseph, who is a temporal father, adopting Jesus, and then God the Father, who is Jesus' heavenly father from all of eternity. Every child that's born is a brand new creature, but Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, Jesus, was God, meaning he's always been God. If Jesus had ever been begat biologically, he could not be God. And Jesus knew this. Jesus, at risk of being stoned in John 8, said to the Pharisees, before Abraham was what? I am. Jesus knew he was Yahweh. And so this is, this is Joseph's path and struggle to grapple with this truth. It's being recentered this morning with Joseph for all of us to be convinced that this is the eternal king. This is the mission that we want to be on, the mission with him, and we have to embrace this by faith. Well, just to pick up in the narrative, you have the setting in verse 18 where it says, when his mother... Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph. What does betrothal mean? Well, betrothal in this time period by Jewish tradition and law meant that a couple, probably a young man who would be 17 or 18 years old, would be in an arranged marriage. Kids, you can pay attention to this. It's kind of interesting. An arranged marriage where he would be arranged to be married to a young teenage girl, a young lady. So you have Joseph who's 17 or 18, maybe maybe younger, and then Mary who's 12, 13, or 14, and they are arranged to be wed, betrothed. They have committed themselves to one another at this point. They are ratified in contract, in a first step in marriage together. It's stronger than being engaged. This kind of commitment would have to be broken apart by the act of divorce though they didn't cohabitate like a married couple they were not in physical union this was a test or a probation period of purity between a couple and so there would even be a dowry that would be paid to um, the father's bride uh, the father of the bride for this marriage i don't know where that um got lost in the marriage arrangements but um that was the two stages of marriage back then, the kiddushin and the hupa, And so they were in the first phase at this point. And their purity was really the basis to vindicate that Jesus was born of a virgin. And you see that in the text. It says, verse 18, before they came together, before there was any physical union She was found to be with child. And so their testimony of faithfulness is vindicating the supernatural conception. It's miraculous because it is from the Holy Spirit. This is something that we can't really, as humans, with finite minds, comprehend. We don't really understand this. This is God's intervention. We can safely say with the Apostles' Creed, just the words, Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Ghost And born of the Virgin Mary. Well, Jesus is eternal because of this miracle conception, okay? That's who we're talking about. Jesus is higher than any socialized false Jesus. This is the high Jesus Christ who comes to save us from our sins. Verse 19, uh, our second lesson in Christology who is Christ? Who is this King? is Jesus is holy. Jesus is holy. Being born of a virgin means that Jesus is eternal and being born of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit means that Jesus is holy. That's the repetition of that word, by the Holy Spirit, tas hagiou. His conception was holy. If... His conception was by Joseph and Mary it would be unholy. People are born in sin. David said in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity, conceived in sin by my mother. So what we're talking about is the origin of Christ's being conceived is by holiness. You know, even if And we learned this last time, if Joseph was Jesus' biological father, that would have carried Jesus back into the the line of David in a way that would would have disqualified him from being a king because there was a curse on the final king of Israel, Jeconiah, and that curse was carried out where no king through that physical line could ever reign and rule over Israel. But because Joseph was not the biological father. Jesus was exempt from that curse. And we learned that last time. Jesus is holy. He came to this earth holy. Jesus is different than you and me. When we were born, we were born in sin. We were born sinners. And because we are born sinners, we sin. Nobody has to teach a two-year-old to say no, and mine, and this and that, right? I mean, they just, we, we suddenly see this angel that we think has no sin, um, manifesting sin all over the place, tantrums and fits, and I know none of you kids do that, right? But, but we're, all of us, all of us are sinners, and Jesus wasn't. Jesus didn't do good and do so many good things that he became holy. Jesus was holy, Unable to sin, pure, perfect, and his holy actions flowed from that. He wasn't a do-gooder outdoing his bad by his good. That's false religion. That's a false gospel. He was made and conceived by the Holy Spirit. Fully God, taking on human flesh, but perfect And Holy. It's a bit of a picture of how we're made new in Christ. When you are as a sinner born again, you're actually made holy in the eyes of God, a holiness that is outside of us. We are declared holy, right? The righteousness of Christ is imputed or declared in terms of our status. That's why we can go to heaven, which is holy and be with holy Jesus Christ. Well, Joseph was made holy. He was a believer. He was what I would call an Old Testament believer. And you see this in verse 19. It says, Joseph, her husband, being a just man. That's dikaios, the word just or righteous. He was a righteous man. He was righteous inside and out. He had been made righteous. Now, still a sinner, but he was made righteous just like we are. And his righteousness played out in that he didn't want to be cruel to Mary. That's the fruit of his being made new. He might not have understood all of what we understand in terms of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit had already invaded his life. He was a believer. Because he was a believer, he was reverential to the law of God, and he knew that if Mary had conceived and was with child that he needed to, by law, divorce her. Deuteronomy 22 is explicit. In verse 23, it says there is a, there's a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in a city and lies with her, and then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. I don't know how concrete this law was in terms of it being in place at this particular time. I don't know if Mary for certain was going to be doomed to be stoned if she was found out, but Joseph was grappling. He was contending with the law of God. He was working it through, but in his conscience, he was unwilling to put her to shame. He didn't want to bring her out into the public for shame. He resolved, he bulomai, he made a conscious Decision, a resolution to divorce her, but to do it quietly. To do it behind the scenes. What does that mean? That means that Joseph was not concerned about his own reputation. This is his heart being righteous. He was going to absorb whatever the consequences were for himself. Well, where's Mary? What's happened to her? She's put away quietly. Well, why? Well, Joseph was just going to absorb whatever people surmised about what happened. And take that in nobility and character and in leadership. That's Joseph. That's why he's explained to us in this way. He was putting her away quietly. He wasn't putting her out in display in some kind of justice for himself moment. He wanted to honor her even though he assumed something had happened, Even that she could have sinned, he was probably in great travail, but he was willing to leave it unexplained and do right. Lincoln Duncan said, When God chose a human father for his son, he chose a man who would be righteous and kind, qualities that reflect God the father himself. It's rare that somebody is righteous and soft in their heart, but Joseph was that rare blend of the two. But even though Joseph was being noble, he still was not clear on what had happened and God needed to intervene and give clarity and he did so and we see that it was done in a dream. Jesus is eternal, right? Conceived by the Holy Spirit of God showing that Jesus himself is eternally existent and where he comes from, his origin. He's also holy, conceived by the Holy Spirit. The narrative plays out in Joseph's noble um, holiness. But finally, Jesus is Savior, and Savior is his name. And we see this in the intervention that happened beginning in verse 20. It says, "'But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, "'Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit.'" Now, to us, this is normal. We've heard this so many times, and we've heard it in Christmas sermons, that we go, okay, we get it. But for Joseph, he had no context for this whatsoever. He had to believe the Word of God coming from a messenger of God in a dream that this is true. He had to believe the Word of God. Now, this is dynamic revelation coming Through a dream, there are five different occasions in the Gospel of Matthew of revelatory dreams. This is one of them, an angel, a messenger, an angelos of the Lord speaking directly to Joseph in a dream where he is completely clear that God is speaking. They've been meditating on Deuteronomy 22, saying, how am I going to put her away or release Mary quietly in this horrible situation? And suddenly, there is a progressive A a progress of revelation. There is greater revelation to shed light on what to do in light of Deuteronomy 22. There's no contradiction between the Old Testament and this revelation because no sin had taken place, right? Mary as a virgin had not sinned. She had not even been violated. There was nothing for Joseph to do now with Deuteronomy 22. He now is to read Deuteronomy 22 in light of the progress of revelation that is given to him by the angel of the Lord. Now, why am I saying this? I'm saying this because Christianity is a thinking spirituality. It's not a a jumping into the dark, but it is a leaping into the light. We know the truth, and the truth sets us free. We have the truth. We have the true king. We have a true mission. We're clear on what to do because the Holy Spirit gives us the discernment to apply truth in light of the whole of Scripture. And so Joseph was weighing things in light of the whole of Scripture. Oftentimes, when we look at an Old Testament reference, we apply it in light of the New Testament, right? We're not under the Old Testament Mosaic law, but those laws are now applied within the gospel light as the law of Jesus Christ. And so we live in light of all of the scripture, but in light of the progress of revelation. And that's what Joseph had. That's what he was diving into. That's how he was finding out that Jesus is the savior. Matthew Henry said, the Lord gives guidance to the thoughtful, not to the unthinking. More clarity was giving more revelation. Joseph would have known of Sarah's conception, even though she was barren and aged, right? Ninety-some years old and gave birth to Isaac and Manoah, um, had a barren wife who gave birth to Samson. These are miracle dynamics where God is opening the womb, but even through normal human biological means of man and wife, Joseph understood all of that. He wasn't confused, but this was a new category because this is a unique savior. Joseph needed to be reassured that the plan was playing out according to God's perfect will. And the angel did that by grounding Joseph in his lineage. He said, Joseph, son of David, you're part of the line of Jesus Christ. You're part of this kingly line. You're a son of David. You might not be a noble Um, citizen or a politician or a governing authority of anybody of um, prominence you're just a carpenter right just like all of us we're the not many mighty not many noble We're, we're the nobodies but we're part of the family of God and the angel's saying you're part of God's family you're part of this plan this is all part of the sovereign outworking of God it's perfectly timed she's supposed to be with child by the Holy Spirit buy into this plan buy into this mission That's what's being stated here. Joseph was waking up to being convinced in terms of Christ's true identity and his true mission. Salvation is far deeper than a political overthrow. It's not a revolution. This is the son of God who is bearing the sins of the world, one who had to be fully God, eternal and holy and fully human at the same time. We see this even in the end of verse 20, the humanity of Christ. It says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived, here it is, in her, in her. There was the humanity of Christ, Jesus who's eternal, holy, fully God, and then fully human so he could die for our sins. It's the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, the first Gospel announcement. I will put enmity between you. That's God speaking to Satan and cursing him. Enmity enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, your seed, all unbelievers that flow from Satan, and her seed, which is all the believers of all time, flowing from Eve, but ultimately through Mary in the one person, Jesus Christ. He Genesis 3.15, he Christ shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Salvation of sin is the mission. He saves. Listen, let me say this. Jesus, the name Jesus means Savior. That's a very key thing to remember these days. Savior. Savior from what? From sin. Look at verse 21 again. You will bear a son, and you shall call his what? Name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus' last name, by the way, is not Christ. It's not Jesus Christ as a first and last name. It's only coupled together in the first verse of this gospel. Even here, where it's repeated in um, verse 18, Jesus Christ, that word Jesus is supplemented in there. In the original, it just says Christ. Jesus means, it it comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua, Yeshua which is where we get the Hebrew um, transliteration, Joshua, which is Yahweh saves. So the Greek version of that is Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. He's the savior. Christ means anointed, which means that Jesus is crowned as king. He's the Messiah. He's the one who fulfills all prophecy as the king. All Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus as king. The third name we're going to come to is that he is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So you have Jesus, which is his common name. You have Christ, which is his kingly or office or official name as king. And then you have Emmanuel, which is a title of Jesus' nature, that he is God, that he is God. And that leads us to our final point, Jesus is eternal. Jesus is holy. Jesus is Savior. He saves us from the guilt of sin. He saves us from the presence of sin. He saves us from the consequences of sin. He is the Savior of his people, the Jews. He's the Savior of the whole world, Matthew 28, 19, all nations. It's essential that he die as a sacrificial payment for our sins, but it was essential that he die not only as fully human, but fully God, so that he could absorb an eternal consequence or eternal wrath against us on our behalf. He saves us not temporally, he saves us forever, eternally. This is verses 22 to 25. Look at this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Matthew's tying everything together here. This is what Joseph had to go through. Let me wrap it all up with an Old Testament connection, an Old Testament prediction. 700 years ago, Isaiah the prophet, during the time of Uzziah and then his son Ahaz, these two kings, uh, descending in wickedness, Ahaz was more wicked than Uzziah. But Ahaz takes the throne, and in the midst of this, there is a prophecy that Isaiah says in verse 23, a promise that's given in light of all kinds of sin. Israel was involved in idolatry. It was involved in the worship of Molech, which was the sacrificing of children into the fire. It was horrible times. They had uh, kings from Syria who were wanting to depose King Ahaz. You had uh, kings that... We were um, trying to take over Aram and Pekah, and these kings were blocked by God and his armies. But it was all to find a prophecy that would be fulfilled. Isaiah 7 14, therefore, and in our text in Matthew as well, all this took place. To fulfill what the Lord had spoken, that word to fulfill there is always connecting Old Testament prophecy that's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a sign that was coming. If you see the beginning of Isaiah seven fourteen, it says, therefore, the Lord himself would give you a sign. What is the sign? The sign is the rest of the verse, which is brought forth by Matthew. It's behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Ultimately, the line of David will not be stopped. Ahaz, bad king. God's going to override that evil and bring about the fulfillment of this prophecy. And the fulfillment has come in Jesus Christ word virgin can mean maiden or someone who is unmarried or unwed ultimately because of the greek translation here from the old testament prophecy brought forward the greek translation says emphatically it's the word parthenos that mary is a virgin this is a virgin who conceived to bear a son as the fulfillment of the miracle birth nothing could stop the plan Emmanuel. What's the significance of the name Emmanuel? I just want to take a moment and say Jesus calls you to a mission, but it's a mission that you'll never be alone on. He goes with you. Remember Matthew 28, 18 to 20, for lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's always with us. Jesus is right here. He is Emmanuel. That's what this truth means. So how did Joseph do? Was he convinced? Was he left in a fog? Did he believe what the angel said? Or did he kind of stay confused? Well, we know he believed because actions speak louder than words. Look at these final verses again. It says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. So he was betrothed. He went to the next step. He said, we're sealed. This is it. But guess what? I'm going to keep you in complete Safety says verse 25, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. There's going to be no confusion whatsoever that this Christ came by miracle birth. That's what he did. That's an action. That's a long-term commitment. We're going to keep this holy. The miraculous conception is clear by the Holy Spirit, not by Joseph. So Jesus is the Savior. And Matthew bought in. How do we know that? Because he called his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. He knew it. It wasn't Mary that named Jesus. They both named Jesus. But this explicitly says Joseph named Jesus Jesus. Because Joseph bought in and knew that Jesus was not only his adopted son, but was his savior and his lord.